This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I speak with an award-winning short fiction writer whose work has appeared in the Chicago Tribune and the Harvard Review. She is the author of the book Once Removed, and she discusses being an identical twin, the importance of a good opening line, and the big value of ass in the chair time. Next on the docket is my dialogue with lawyer-turned-writer Colette Sartor. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. The importance of an opening line. I know that's throwing a big curveball in, but in a short story, it's so critical to hooking folks. I feel like opening lines, I don't care what you're writing. Opening lines are absolutely essential because if you give me the opening line, she woke up and looked at the ceiling. There are no stakes. I don't know who this person is and I don't care. And guess what? I might need one more line, but then I'm going to put that thing away and go read something else. I always tell my students, yes, particularly in short stories, but I feel like in everything you write, that opening line has to create a voice, a compelling voice that I can't wait to keep reading and has to put me right in the middle of conflict, has to make me feel like, ooh, this is going to be tense. Stuff is going to happen here. And if the first line doesn't do that or at least promise tension to conflict to come, then why read it? Before I wrote, I used to love those languid, poetic books where nothing happen. Oh my God, give me a thriller that's a page turner any day of the week. And if it's beautifully written, that's even better. I'm a huge Tana French fan. She's a thriller writer. She's Irish. She is, if you want to read great cop procedural thrillers, or she's just phenomenal. And everything she writes, she ups the stakes, she ups the stakes, she ups the stakes, but with characters that you you either completely love or you despise, but you can't help reading them because you want to know what happens to them because they're real. And it's your one shot, man. If you want to get published and your opening line sucks, the reader's going to put it aside because guess what? Readers for magazines have electronic piles this high. They're just going to put you aside. Let's talk about having a mastermind group or a writing buddy and how that helps propel your writing. I didn't start writing till I was around 30. I mean, seriously writing. I didn't start writing fiction. I always tell my students, I didn't truly become a writer until I could admit that I needed a writing community, that I needed that input. I needed my community of critics, people who got what I was trying to do and who could get together with me and say, okay, how can we 
help you realize what you're trying to create. But it took me years to be able to say, yeah, real writers do that. Real writers need input. Because, you know, I had this picture in my head of the writer who sits down, writes a book, and it goes straight to an editor, into production, into publication. Very few writers write that way. (laughs) It's okay. You need to be collaborative in some way in every creative process. Well, the feedback loop, let's say for TV writer, for theater writer, even for film writer, when you hear the actors reading the material, there's a musical rhythm to it. There's the nature of when the audience gasps or doesn't gasp. And many times it'll be flat or you'll realize, wait a minute, there's all this exposition that has nothing to do with the energy or action. So that feedback loop becomes, I think, more critical than, say, what a network tests the show with people watching and pushing buttons. But I think just the author being able to preview the content allows them to make editing a little bit more swiftly. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. And it's not just that. We actually do a lot of prescriptive discussions. And the good thing is I've been with my writers groups now for so many years that we all know if somebody says, you know, what if you tried this? You don't have to try it. Also, it's that note beneath the note thing. But, you know, we're all sensitive. And I always know when I'm digging my heels in the most, when there's a particular part of a story or a chapter that's getting nailed and people are saying, I don't get this or, you know, why don't you try this? And I think, well, they, they, they just don't know what they're talking. They don't know what I'm <laughs> trying to do. And I know in the back of my mind that a few days from now, that's going to be the place that I have to address. Because if I'm digging my heels in, it's because I'm feeling sensitive because I know there's something that's not working at that point. So it's such a wonderful process because I don't get to have an audience in the sense that I don't ever get to hear people read my work aloud. I read my work aloud because there is a rhythm to prose. And also, quite frankly, I love to write dialogue. A lot of writers, a lot of novelists and a lot of short story writers are very spare with dialogue. But I think dialogue is such a great way to get to character and to develop relationships, to get the subtext of a relationship and not hear the the odd that I just did, not hear that crap. You know, not hear the hi, how are you's, hear the stuff that people really say to each other, you know, manufacture that conversation that's going to reveal something absolutely imperative to the forward motion of the story, to, you know, the, the characters and their relationship to each other, whatever. So I have to read this stuff aloud because I have to hear if my dialogue's working. I don't get to do that to an audience. Is there a specific reason that you choose short fiction as your platform for storytelling? I thought when I went to graduate school, I was still a lawyer when I started writing. You start writing short stories when you're first starting to write creatively. I'd always written, but I was supposed to write to make a living. You know, I was a good writer. So that's why I went to law school because it was a safe degree. And, and I was miserable from the minute I entered law school because it is a lousy way to make a living. And I actually did not draft briefs. I was an entertainment lawyer. So I drafted contracts and I negotiated contracts. Let me tell you, that's really miserable unless you're dealing with production. Production is so much fun because production people are wonderful. But I started writing short stories because that's kind of how you ease your way into writing fiction. And then when I went to, I quit being a lawyer, I went to graduate school because I knew if I didn't leave LA, I was not going to be able to disengage and watch everybody else around me keep rising through the ranks. And I'm trying to do something different. So I went away to graduate school 
and I'm, I'm going to be a novelist because I write really long. I'm long-winded. So I wrote a couple of really bad novels and decided that I needed to go back to writing short stories to teach me how to write a good story because short stories are incredibly demanding. You have only a certain amount of space. You have to create the sense of a whole life lived with a few scenes. And it's incredibly challenging. I, I, not unfortunately, because I think it's a beautiful art form, but unfortunately, in terms of having a commercial career, I got hooked. And, and I am, I actually am working on a novel right now. I think having worked on short stories for so long, I finally have the guts to say, okay, there's this novel that's been sitting in me forever. And I've been writing these characters forever because they're part of my short stories. And so I've spun them into a novel that's based on a murder my grandmother helped cover up in the 70s. And I loved this grandmother, absolutely adored her, but she was a tough old broad. I mean, she was, she didn't like many people. She loved her family. And I didn't find this out till I was in my 30s, I think. And I had a quite inappropriate reaction. You know, you'd think, oh, you'd be horrified. And how could she do that? And of course, my reaction was, yeah, that sounds like grandma. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. And I imagine when you talk about this novel bubbling up inside you, I read maybe on your website or an article that you said that it's once the characters' voices get loud enough, I start to write. And I think that's a really amazing quote for people to realize, which is this story now you're telling in a novel form must come out. You need to express it for your relationship with your grandmother, but also you have the confidence with all the other writing you've done that you now can devote the time to it. I read several of your short fiction pieces that I didn't think were that short. They're not. <laughs> I want to call this episode short story long instead of long story short. It was amazing writing. Your attention to detail. I read Daredevil, which I thought was really an extraordinary piece that clobbered me at the end. It's, you know, it snuck up on me. And I think that's great. So let's talk about the architecture. You had just mentioned how complicated and how lean you have to be and how much you have to take care of. So maybe for folks that don't know, what are the demands of a short story? I mean, it depends on the type of short story you're writing. If you're writing flash, which is a thousand words or under that, which I can't do. You're right. I write long. I have written maybe two pieces in my entire life that are under 5,000 words. Generally, my stories tend to be between six and 8,000 words. I've got two stories in my collection that are 10,000 words and 13,000 words. So I write really, really long. But really, in a short story, you have to find a way. You want to be focused on one particular situation. And, and I always say you need a flawed character who really, really wants something. And then you've got to put that character in the midst of a conflict that threatens to take away what the character wants. I mean, it's like writing any story, but you have to keep it contained. So many readers read novels over short stories that, you know, in a novel, a novel is, is expansive. A novel, you can, you can digress. You cannot digress in a short story. So if you come as a reader to writing short stories, start reading short stories because you can't digress. So everything that's in your story has to service the present day action, has to service your main character who is caught in the midst of a conflict that's going to take away everything. There's a certain amount of urgency in it. Yes, there absolutely has to be. Otherwise, it doesn't go anywhere. And even quiet, because I tend to, I always say I write quiet short stories 
And yet when I look at them, I'm like, well, you have dead cats and you have, <laughs> you know, you, you have, you know, kids getting injured, kids jumping, you know, and, and they're not all that quiet, but I don't write about blowing things up, but you can find a really intense conflict. There's a, an incredible writer, uh, Jhumpa Lahiri, who has a new book coming out. She won the Pulitzer for her very first book. It was a short story collection called Interpreter Maladies. If you were to read her stories, they're long, they're seemingly slow paced, but by the end, they are a gut punch. She's just an incredible, incredible writer. Alice Monroe is a Canadian, primarily short story writer who won the Nobel Prize for Literature. They both write these sprawling 13,000 word stories, really huge short stories that pack a gut punch that you feel like, well, these are such quiet things that are happening until they're not. So with a short story, you can't have a flashback there just to have a flashback. Just It's kind of like writing, quite frankly, it's kind of like writing a screenplay or a teleplay. Everything in there has to service the forward motion of the story. And if it doesn't, it don't belong there. In fiction, you can have flashbacks because you don't get the visuals to help you move a story along. But if a flashback's just there to gee, I love this part of this character's life and I want you guys to see it and experience it, go write a novel. You can't do that in a short story. Right. That flashback had better be there because it's telling us something absolutely essential about the present day action. And the story itself, when you talk about a central idea, I mean, it's a powder keg, so it doesn't matter how much of that is fuse. If those writers you're talking about are setting it up and it's coming towards that place when it when the surprise element happens or the twist or the gut punch, as you refer to it, everything blows at the same time. Exactly. As a coach or a teacher, when you're letting people know what kind of ideas to search for, what's kind of your headline to them to find what's worth writing about? We do, and I learned this through Cinestory, we do this exercise called identifying your personal thematic. And it's all about helping people understand there's this brilliant writer, Elizabeth Strout. She wrote Olive Kittredge. And I finally, I read that book a million times. I finally watched the miniseries this weekend, which gutted me. It was wonderful. She has this quote that we use. It's, you only have one story to tell. Don't worry about it. You're going to tell it over and over and over in various iterations. But it's your job. And this is where we come in. It's your job to understand what that thematic is. I was just doing this with a class I'm teaching right now called Building the Short Story Collection, where we're talking about how to put together a short story collection, because it's not as easy as taking all of your stories and putting them in a book and saying, OK, here it is. No, it's not that. But anyway, one of the things we're working on is, OK, what is your thematic? What is that thing in you that keeps you creating? Because I am one of those writers. I don't write every day. I try to, and I will go on long stretches where I am writing, 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 writing. But I have learned finally that I always have a fallow period where I am sitting with things and they're brewing, but I'm not going to the page yet until I'm in so much pain that I'm crying to my husband like I was two weeks ago. I think I just need to stop. I can't do this anymore. And then all of a sudden, oh, there you are. And I'm writing. Part of what's been really helpful to me is that I'm not just teaching about identifying your personal thematic, I'm working on it. So it's all about going to those things. What are those things that I keep writing about over and over and over? 
And that's what I've found recently has been a really wonderful thing to work with my students on. Because if you understand those soul crushing things that come out that force you to create, that keep you yearning to put work out there, then you're going to do it. And it's really fascinating to work with writers and hear them say, you know, have them be really hesitant to talk about what their thematic is. And then to say, you know, I think this really goes back to the fact that I was in, for instance, I was in foster homes for so long. Or I think this goes back to like with me, it goes back to the fact that I had a very creative mother and a very, and they're both very difficult people and a very scientific father who did not value creativity and a mother who could be devalued because she, it was of a certain generation. And I tend to write about situations like that where people are not valued for who they are. It's about helping people understand why they write. I think that's awesome. And now you've opened up three ideas, but one I want to ask you just about is the value of creativity in your life. I've always created and I never really thought about it because we just always did. My mother was, uh, was an artist and a phenomenal writer. I remember sitting there with her. I have an identical twin sister and she and I would sit with my mom. My mom was really young and we would draw and draw and draw. And then as we got older, we sculpted and then I was a singer and then I did this and then I did that. But then when I went to college, I had to get serious and I was supposed to give all that up because again, it wasn't value was measured in dollars. You know, it's part of being from a line of immigrant Italian immigrants who came here with nothing, literally were wrapping their shoes in burlap and putting newspapers in their coats to keep warm in the winter. I understand that. But that's not how I necessarily wanted to live. And yet I wanted to be accomplished. I wanted to be considered accomplished in my family. And as it was, being a woman puts you one step away from accomplishment. But I went to law school, sobbed on the phone to my identical twin sister, who was on her way to Italy to study sculpture and photography, how much I hated the first day of law school. And I kept doing it. I kept doing it, I kept doing it, kept doing it until I couldn't anymore, until I, no joke, I would have a breakdown in the office. I finally had to say, I'm not singing anymore. I'm not sculpting anymore. I got to try something else. So I started writing because I just couldn't exist anymore. I couldn't be a, a functioning human being without doing something creative. And I imagine when you're younger and a parent puts the sense of approval and accomplishment on the stable approach to life, that that it becomes a goal that you want to please that. Oh, yeah. So what is unique for you is that you have an identical twin sister who is also a creative, it sounds like. Yes. And so that's very interesting that you can actually, in some ways, see the opposite life happening that you're not a part of. She's the oldest by eight whole minutes. They didn't even know I was there. They thought we were one big baby boy. That's how old I am. There was no ultrasound. But she was always the one who went out and did stuff first. And then I kind of let her test the waters and I did it too. So when we got to college, our deal with our dad, and I adore my father. And honestly, he wanted safety. He wanted, and we were smart and he knew it. So he wanted us to do something that was going to keep us safe as we got older. He wanted us to go the safe route. So he made a deal with us. We could go to a liberal arts college if we were chemical engineering majors, because that's what he got his PhD in. 
So we both took chemistry our freshman year. And I remember midway through our regular chem exam, it was the lab exam. She put her head on the desk and I could see her because we were in the same class. Our TAs went up to her and said, what are you doing? She's like, that's all I know. I'm done. <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking, and, and you know, we are, we have done everything together since we were kids. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh my God, she's going to fail the test. Oh my God, but I have to pass it. Oh my God. And that was it. She was done. And she started taking sculpture and she wrote in college and I didn't. We both sang, but I kept going. I ended up being a psychology major because, yeah, screw chemistry, screw org chemistry. I was not taking PCHEM. But then I went to law school because, again, I was going to go the safe route and she wasn't. So she ended up going to Italy for a year. Then she moved out here. She was an AD for a long time. And again, that was her playing it safe. But then she became screenwriter. She directs and she's always my first reader and I'm always hers. I think that's awesome. And I think it's really a privilege to have a mirror at the same age to be able to see what it would be like or what's happening and learn from each other along the way. I mean, most siblings can do that, but not so much in sync the way the two of you are. We're so lucky. you know. And I always say, I don't know any other way because I've known her since before birth, but we are really so lucky to be able to, and I know she has to a certain extent kind of followed, like watched what I do and, and followed along. But ultimately I've always watched her, especially when it comes to creativity, because she's always been the more brave one who was willing to take risks and was willing to say, this makes me unhappy. I need to go do what makes me happy. And that is to create. It took me a lot longer to follow that path. And I did not want to do exactly what she did because I felt as if I wanted to be the master of my universe. I don't like to share too much, even though I've got a twin sister. And I figured if I write fiction, I am the master of my own universe. I think we all need to see that things are possible in order to do them. There was a guy named Henry Marsh that was watching to see if they could break the four-minute mile in the Olympics. And so he set out to do that. Well, everybody else was watching, and the year that suddenly that year that he ran in the Olympics, a bunch of people suddenly broke the four-minute mile, and he was the fourth guy to do it. Like, at the time he was dreaming of it, he was faster than anyone in the world. But everybody was competing for that marker, and so he tells an amazing story of his journey that even though he was as fast as anyone else, literally by the difference of a nose, it wasn't significant because everybody was going for that goal. But it's great that your sister showed the way. But in the meantime, you did find your own voice and you went out and you've been published in many, many publications and had your own collections of work. So let's just talk about what you might share about the importance of being published because I know that the submission process is its own level of, of fear, right? Your own gauntlet of submitting and then dealing with rejection. So I'm opening the door for you to tell any listener, one, to go ahead and do that and then what they can expect. Oh my God, yes, go ahead and do it. Because I spent, it took me a long time to submit. I actually had had something published right before I went to grad school. And then I didn't start submitting again until maybe five or six years after I graduated. Because, you know, I think with me, it's a crisis of confidence and it's just something I have to deal with as an artist. Part of my process is that crisis of confidence I, and getting past it and saying, ah, screw that. 
I'm done feeling that way. It's time to go look at the good stuff I've created. But I used to tell myself, I'm not writing to be published. I'm writing to become a better writer. So with every story I write, I need to become a better writer. I need to learn something more about writing. And eventually I listened to myself and said, yeah, that's true. But the stuff about you're not writing to be published, that's bullshit. (laughs) Of course you're writing to be published. Why the hell else are you writing? You want your work out in the world. You want to share your voice. You want to share your stories. So now submitting is just part of the process. It's part of being a fiction writer and getting lots and lots and lots and lots of rejections. It's part of the process. Unless you're a huge writer who's going to get invited. I mean, I've gotten invited to write, you know, to submit places and, and do you have anything here that we could use? But there are writers who everything they publish first, you know, they have a first look deal with the New Yorker. There are those very few writers, but the rest of us send out their work and get their asses kicked and eventually get accepted at some really fabulous places. You need that. It's that little burst of affirmation saying, oh, wow, this one hit. You do feel like by the time you get your characters out into the world, they are their own voices. You're like, I'm so glad she's going to be out there. I'm so glad someone gets to, is going to read about her. And you have to feel that way about your characters. I was working on my novel this weekend. I had a deadline. I'm reading through it saying, you know, Rose wouldn't, no, how would Rose really react here? Rose, you're not going to do that. You know, and you have, you have to feel that way about them. You got to get your work into the world. One of my sister's professors in graduate school used to say, it's not always the best writers who succeed. It's those who best withstand despair. And it's really true. You have to be able to get three rejections in one day, say, oh, fuck, that feels awful. You know, sit with it for a couple of days and then say, okay, what's next? Where am I sending this next? And still be writing. Because if you're that kind of person who's going to take a single rejection and say, that's it, I'm done, you're not going to get read. Rejection is very, very personal. But it also doesn't mean that the work is bad. We don't know necessarily. It may not fit that publication. It, they may have had an article like it three weeks ago. We, you, you don't ever know. It's it's a little bit in in the world of casting, for example. I was on the side of auditioning for things. Every time you go home, you hang your head. And then even on the way home, you're driving home and you're saying to yourself, that is good tasting tuna. And like you do your best <laughs> read and you go, oh, yeah, I nailed it. What's funny about it is once I got on the producing and directing side of things, it's like The Bachelor. You cannot give a rose to everybody. You have one job to give and you want, literally when people walk in the door, I want to give it to everyone. That's the beginning of the process is, I hope this person is the person. You Sometimes you chat with them before and you go, wow, this is a really confident person. They seem to fit the character of this guy. And then they read and they stink it up. <laughs> And I'm not saying they all do. I'm just saying there might be an air of desperation or they need it or they don't. The same thing that they walked in the door with, they don't use as they audition. And conversely, you might see a dozen or a few hundred people for a part. And I remember casting people years later that I couldn't give the job to where I go, I always liked that person, but I couldn't give them that job. But you know what? They'd be great for the guy in the garden center that's lost his marbles. And I just say, call him. Like, I know that guy's good enough. So each time that a person does that, and I'm equating this to the work, I imagine that in your collection of short stories, that when you are building a bigger work, you then get to decide that this character or this voice gets to live in this form and with this family. Is that right? Oh, yeah. 
I love collections that have recurring characters and recurring storylines. And when I was creating my collection, I got to go in and say, oh, this character, you know, there's something really quirky about her. There's something mysterious about her because she was never a point of view character. She was always, you know, a secondary character. And I thought, how would this other story that's already been published, how would it change if she were in it? And if she actually has this baby that we weren't sure in the first story that she was going to really have? What happens if, if that happens here? And what happens if Daredevil, little boy, recurs in another story with his dad, who's barely in Daredevil? And because I said, what happens when that kid is older and when his dad meets somebody else? What does that look like? Because this is a kid who's profound, who's going to be profoundly disabled. And it's just so much fun to be able to say, what happens if? There's just something about when you're putting together work and you get to say, well, what if? What if I tweak this one thing and where could that take me? That's where you keep getting excited. Well, I think one of the things you mentioned there was sort of changing the point of view. A big Broadway musical like Wicked or the book that it was based on is really the Wicked Witch's point of view of what we learned from watching The Wizard of Oz. And it's an entirely different story. And you also have empathy for the Wicked Witch for growing up green and being looked down upon and being yep. bullied. And you go, oh, I, I get it. There are always, within our own stories, ways to find a different point of view or locate a new fear in a character that can open a whole nother door to all new worlds. And it's a blast, too. It's really, really fun to take somebody you think you know really well, you know, a character that you've lived with forever and say, well, what if I put you in this situation? And that's what I did. I took recurring characters from my short story collection, characters I've written about for years. It's a family that is based in Fairview, New Jersey, which is where my dad is from. And it's where my grandmother grew up. She grew up on, believe it or not, there was a dairy farm in the middle of Fairview, New Jersey. And Fairview is this uber urban, not great area anymore. It's not bad, but it's, it's not spectacular. But they had this huge dairy farm, her family did. Her mother ran away from Italy with a gardener. She was some kind of nobility and they had nothing. They built this dairy farm and then they lost, I want to say, seven kids in the flu pandemic of 1918, which I say is why this pandemic freaked me out because I grew up with that story. That whole place, you know, my grandmother lived there practically her whole life and I grew up going there. So that place fascinates me to be able to take that and take the characters that I put in that situation, that I put in that house, that I put in that neighborhood, and the one that's based on my grandmother, and then to get to keep spinning a new book based on all of them is so much fun. And to me, it kind of feels like what it must be like to work on serialized TV, to be able to say, I'm going to take these characters and we're going to create a whole series about them and see where that goes. It's just fantastic. When something is clear, when there's a passionate vision for something, really there's no stopping it from coming to life. If you have discipline, I think there's a big conflict within most writers I know or creators is the discipline versus doubt balance of things. Because you can build the doubt narrative strong enough to keep you from doing what you need to do. The best time I ever had when I was in graduate school, you're there for two years 
and all you're doing is writing. That's all that's expected of you. And you know, I didn't have kids. I had just met my husband, but we weren't married. Um, I was in the middle of the country where I knew no one except the people in my program. And it was a blast because we were there to write. So we would, every night when we'd get together for dinner, you know, you compare ass in the chair time. How much time was your ass in the chair today? You know, I wrote for six hours. I wrote for eight. I'm like, we had the time to do that. <laughs> and now I have a kid and I have a husband and I have teaching and I have so many other things going on, but I still have my ass in the chair time. I need to get my ass in that chair. And even if I think I'm writing crap, it has to be written because if it's not written, then I'm never going to get to good stuff because I'm one of those people who to get a first draft out of me is painful, but I got to get the first draft out because I got I can't wait to get to the revisions. I love to revise because to me, storytelling is putting together the most fascinating puzzle on earth. And so once I've got that messy draft done, or at least part of it, then I get to revise it and start rearranging the puzzle pieces and see how they're supposed to really fit together. And it's just, it's just a blast. Rewrites are something that novice writers, they think they're done when they finish that first draft. And rewrites are a, an ongoing dance and knowing even how long to step away from something. I like that you've now taught us all about AITC, ass in the chair time. <laughs> That's the new bracelet, the Colette Sartor merchandise. It works. My ass isn't in the chair. I'm probably doing laundry or you know, walking the dog. I'm doing something that's not writing. There's something else that I read that I would like to your point of view on, that you talked about having a hesitation in writing for the other gender or from the other gender's perspective. So, of course, I face that also when writing other characters that, you know, opposing from my gender's perspective. But tell me a little bit about that struggle or hesitation. I'm okay with writing, obviously. I mean, I don't write only about women. I have men in my my book. I have men in my stories. I don't often, I think maybe I've done it once, write from a man's point of view. Because I know a lot of women who write beautifully from the male's point of view. I know a lot of men who write beautifully from women's point of view. I don't feel like a man's point of view comes out authentically with me. I have so many female voices clamoring in my head that I figure I might as well, you know, I, I'm going to listen to them for a while. Actually, I'm thinking that there's probably going to be one or two chapters in my novel because the, the novel is told from three different points of view, all women, two daughters and their mother, the one based on my grandmother. But I'm thinking that I'm going to need a couple of chapters in a couple of the men's point of view, just to kind of give us a little insight in something else that's going on in the book. Usually what I say is I wait until I feel like I'm a good enough writer to tackle things, you know, writing things that scare me or that I think I'm not ready for. And I'm thinking I'm getting closer to being ready. But for a very long time, I felt like I'm not a good enough writer to be able to write authentically in a man's voice. So that's why I haven't. But again, when I write, I set myself new challenges. And sometimes I frame them as structural things. Well, I want to try to tell a story that's got a flash forward at the penultimate scene. And I want to tell a story that's out of order, like really horribly out of order. Because I want to play with the order in which you tell a story tells you something about the storyteller. 
So I always say, okay, how would my characters tell this story? In what order? When we're telling family stories, when I'm telling the story about the time my uncle and my father took a boat out into Lake Erskine near their military boarding school to go meet some girls, and my uncle got kicked out because of it, and my father didn't, they always had a very specific starting point for that story. When they told it in a very specific way that I can't quite replicate. So I have to think about, given who my characters are, what they want, and what they're afraid of, how are they going to tell this story? It matters. So I set myself challenges. Okay, who is this character and how much can I play with how they would tell the story? So I did that. Now I'm comfortable with that. So I feel like, okay, I'm writing a novel. It's my first one in a very long time. And I'm feeling more comfortable as a writer. I'm feeling more settled as a writer. I'm feeling like I trust my characters more. I trust them to say, you know what, back off. I can do this. You can be my scribe, but just let me go for a while and then you can come in and fix things later. So I feel like, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to let myself try writing a man again. But I've been very hesitant because I feel like I want to do a good job and I don't want to just paint a man as a stereotype. And that's what I fear doing. Here's the thing. I'm here to tell you that you're a plenty good enough writer to do it. <laughs> I don't you. know about the authenticity. Again, all of that is to be learned. But I think that we create some self-sabotaging barriers because yeah. it's not safe. It's, it's an insurance policy to write what we know. You're ready for the challenge. I was a comedy writer all my life. I wrote comedy. I wrote humor. And I felt safe there. So I kept doing that. So I needed to go a little deeper. I needed to be a little bit more honest. And I realized by showing that vulnerability, my writing became better. People liked my writing better. And it's super easy to decorate the Christmas tree after you have the tree. But I was always coming in with the decorations first. <laughs> Is that what led you to playwriting? What led me to playwriting was that I was a stand-up comedian and a magician. And I went out to L.A., and in L.A., I started writing sitcoms. Like that was, I wanted to get into sitcom writing, and I didn't know how anybody would read my scripts. So uh, with another writer, we wrote a play because we knew we could put a play up. This is, comes from getting responses as a stand-up. I thought, you know, people aren't reading these piles of scripts in Hollywood. There's rooms full of scripts that nobody's reading. And if a person does read it, the system is... A junior person at the company reads it. They write coverage. They reduce your whole screenplay into a paragraph. And then they pick the ones they like. And they move that to another guy's room who reads that paragraph. And he turns it into a log line, which is literally a sentence. And by that point, they go, now that sounds stupid. Like nobody's really reading it. <laughs> so my the premise was if we write a play and put it on, we could put it on in front of an audience and we would invite the TV people to come and see it. And whether they liked it or not, they couldn't deny if the audience was laughing. It's a little bit of a magic trick, which is- That's genius. They might say, I don't get it, but there's something all these people like about it. And that was transferable. That was what created heat for that particular piece. And it was that first play that got my partner, Matt Goldman and I, the first- two writing slots on the Seinfeld show because we had submitted that play to Castle Rock. We also maintained the rights to our content by doing it that way. So I would always say to people, you need to own the content. 
so that if a TV company or a movie company wants to do something about it, when you write a spec script, it's different. Like there's no use for it. But if you write a comic book or you write a play or you write anything that you still own, then you can negotiate the next step to turn it into something. And that, that was- You write the underlying yeah, material. Yeah, that was important yep. for me. I, I, there's an exercise that I do or did in stand-up, which I think works well for story writing and, and short fiction, which is eavesdropping. <laughs> She's getting excited. Oh, I love to eavesdrop. Okay, so tell me what that means to you when you're eavesdropping and how you come into a story. Somebody says something and you want to know what happened. Oh, yeah. Like I've been, I was at an airport one time and I over, overheard somebody say, it takes more than two beers to get me naked dancing on a picnic table. I was, I was at a restaurant one time listening to some people, this is out in Palm Desert. No, not Palm Desert, someplace really, really out there. And I'm sitting next to two people clearly on a first date and talking about what they do for a living, this and that. And, and I could tell the guy knew I was listening because he was facing me. And all of a sudden, he kind of glances over me, gives a little grin and says, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a mechanic, but really I'm a welder at heart. I could weld anything but the crack in your ass and a broken heart. And I'm just like, this is fabulous. And of course, I used it. I heard the other half of a phone conversation. That's an interesting way, because then you get to fill in the other side. But this woman was talking to her girlfriend, and she's like, just because he got out of prison doesn't mean I have to spend time with, you know, like, okay. <laughs> Why was he in prison? Why are you actually thinking about getting back together? Like there were so many whys that, I mean, I just think that's a great exercise for young writers is just overhear something and then tell us what, what's going on. Oh yeah. I, I, I actually wrote a whole years ago, I wrote a whole ex dialogue exercise based on eavesdropping and just, it has a series of steps about what you do. You know, once you scribble down all this great stuff that you're hearing then it has a series, and I, I wrote it so long ago, I don't even remember exactly what it is, but there's a series of stuff I suggest you do to take you away from the ums and the, the as and the, you know, all the throat clearing crap that goes on in a conversation and focus on those jewels that you heard, the things that got you thinking about the what ifs. Why, why would you be staying with someone in prison? <laughs> oh my God, it's so much fun. And you're talking a bit about raising the stakes. I think that in story writing, you're always raising the stakes. I remember a book from when I was a kid called Fortunately. I don't know if you know this book. No. Fortunately is the title, but every other page, it's a fortunately, unfortunately. Fortunately, he was invited to a birthday party. Unfortunately, it was taking place across the country. Fortunately, he had a friend that owned a plane. Unfortunately, the engine blew up. Fortunately, he had a parachute. Unfortunately, there was a hole in the parachute, right? So <laughs> it, this went on and on and on. But what was great about it, it's like, to me, one of the great examples of how to write a screenplay is that in the very end, after the parachute, fortunately, there was a haystack. Unfortunately, there was a pitchfork in the haystack. Get to the <laughs> place where he ends up, fortunately, he missed the haystack. Unfortunately, he landed in the water. Fortunately, whatever. Unfortunately, there were sharks. So he now has to tunnel and lions are chasing him and he breaks through. And unfortunately, he popped up in the middle of this party. But fortunately, it was a surprise party and it was for him. And it was the birthday party that was set up in the premise. And it seems like a long, crazy kid's book, but it is like the essence. It's almost the plot of Indiana Jones that 
the stakes, the Indians, the arrows, it's raising the stakes at all times. I was going to say, that's a masterclass in how to tell a story. That is the best book to give a kid to help them understand storytelling is about giving your character something they really want and then throwing stuff in their way so they can't get it. And that's called raising the stakes. You raise the stakes when you create obstacles. And sometimes it's a physical obstacle. Sometimes it's an internal obstacle. As we talked about fear or doubt, there's uh, so many things to talk about in, in the world of writing. I would encourage folks to look at your website. Is there a place that you would send them? Is there a specific spot where we can see your catalog of work or know more about you? So I have a book page and I have an other works page that are in the same pull down. And that's where most of my work is. A lot of my work is in my collection, which is which is fun. I've got a bunch of essays that I've written too, but it's all there. Good. Well, they can look up your book titled Once Removed, and yep. I'm sure it's available on... Yes, everywhere. Well, I, I had a terrific time getting to know you. I can't wait to read more of your work. I'm going to encourage others to source out some of that work and read some of those things that I was reading online through your website. You're really great. And I wish you well on writing from a male perspective, because I think we're going to be seeing that soon. I hope so. Pat, this was amazing. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot .fun because .com is just too dot .common. And dot .fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page Stepping on a ghostlit stage A circus of uncertainty Your call to creativity Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. 
with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now.